Hi, I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, here to let you know about a new and innovative theater major, the BA in Theater and Business Arts at the University of Providence. Get the education and experience you need as a theater artist and the business acumen to succeed in your career. Visit broadwaybullet.com and stay tuned to the end of the program for more info. Now, enjoy the show. Center, it sounds very huge and elevated, and that's what it feels like. Like once you're working there, because rent is about much more than just friendship, love, and musical theater. It was about something that shook musical theater. People are becoming more and more comfortable with, you know, issue of people being different. I mean, we do it all. I mean, you know, we don't we don't back away from anything. Welcome to Volume 133 of Broadway Bullet. I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, and we've got a fantastic episode for you. We only got two features, but what features? Uh, Nancy Anderson is here to perform a song from the new musical, Yank, and also to talk about the show with a couple other people. That's going to be great. We also got a video of that uh, that you can link to at broadwaybullet.com. We've also got an in-depth up-close with Lynn Ahrens and Stephen Flaherty. Yes, they got a new musical going on at the Lincoln Center, and they're here to talk about their careers, and you're going to hear a few songs from them, and just a great, great interview. They're just here this morning, and I just got it up in time. This is kind of what I've been hinting about for a while. Just want to remind everybody, if you haven't yet, be sure you subscribe to Broadway Bullet in iTunes. It's simple. Just link to it from the front page at broadwaybullet.com or search Broadway Bullet in iTunes. And this week, yay, I want to thank iTunes. They featured us. We're in the top left of the podcast section, the, the first time it flips over. Good placement. It's already increasing subscribers. This is a really good time for you to give us a five-star review in iTunes if you haven't yet. Please do this, because... Um, our featured position on the arts page is based on total subscribers and on the reviews. So all the features going up, if a lot of reviews are coming in, it will really shoot us up the features chart and we'll find a whole lot more listeners. It's a real simple way that you can help us out. And I greatly appreciate it. Please go review five stars. You have to have an iTunes store account. But that's easy. Well, enough of that. This is a fun episode. I'm excited for you to hear what's going on. So uh, let's get rolling. On the boards. Well, just two weeks ago, we wrapped up our extensive coverage of the New York Musical Theater Festival. But another show is opening that shows how the legacy lives. Yank, a new musical, debuted in Nymph in 2005 and is now opening with the Gallery Players on October 20th. And we have Nancy Anderson starring in the show and Jeffrey Denman, the choreographer and playing Artie, here to talk with us. How are you doing? Great. How are Excellent. you? Thanks for having us. Good. So, uh... Tell us a little bit about Yank, the basics to start off. Jeffrey, you want to start? Well, uh, it's a story uh, that takes place during World War II, about um, basically about two soldiers who um, fall in love against the backdrop of uh, basic training and uh, going into in fight, and uh, what kind of challenges and, and uh, problems that that, uh, that, that ultimately um, uh, reveals because uh, not only do they have obviously the war to deal with, but they also have uh, social, um, you know, uh, conflict. The the idea of two men being together, especially in the army, 
Uh, it's a totally different world in 1940 than it was than it is now, and uh, we all know about you know the gays in the military idea. But what's genius about the show is that it's um, set uh, in in what is an homage to old MGM movie musicals and old wartime musicals. And uh, David and Joe Zalnick, the writers, set out to write an entire score full of standards, and they really succeeded. I mean, these, these songs, you really can um, measure them up to the, the greats, you know, the Gershwins, Rodgers and Hart, Cole Porter. I mean, they really live in that land. They yeah. have um, that wonderful old style with great hooks, great lyrics, great melodies. Yeah. And um, what I love about this show is that it, um, it presents a somewhat m- modern storyline in, in this uh, period form. And David uh, Zelnick, who's the book writer, did an awful lot of research on, um, on the uh, gay community in World War II. And how they ended up after the war, they ended up settling in San Francisco, and that's how that whole San Francisco Renaissance uh, came to be. A lot of the show is based on uh, journals and letters that, oh, yeah. were, that were written during the time. And Yank Magazine was um, one of the most wide, widely circulated magazines at the time. Uh, it was written by soldiers for soldiers, and that's that's kind of what uh, that's the thread through. Uh, through Yank is 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 um, is Yank Magazine acts as this connector, um, and Stu, uh, played by Bobby Steggert, uh, actually becomes a photographer for Yank. Um, and Bobby Steggert, you remember him from One in t- One Ten in the Shade? Yeah. Mm-hmm. He's so brilliant in that, <laughs> oh, geez, and he's, he's amazing in this show. He's he's really yeah. uh, quite a wonder uh, for a, a kid his age, and I don't mean to make him sound like he's what? you know. <laughs> 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 I don't oh, know speak little, from experience. Those little tykes are doing such a great job here. God, the kids today are so amazing. <laughs> they can sing and dance and act. My goodness, what are they doing in college? <laughs> So now, Nancy, you uh, have a little history already now with Nymph. You were just in one of their shows. I was in The Piper, a show by Marcus Hummond, who is a Nashville songwriter, most famous for writing Cowboy Take Me Away that the Dixie Chicks sing. Oh, yeah. This guy's a genius. Wow. He writes some great tunes. And uh, and uh, that show marked my debut on New York stages playing my fiddle. Oh, nice. Yeah, it's true. Uh, the, the original script, uh, The Piper, is about this... Um, There's no quotes around that, playing your fiddle. <laughs> no, no, no. That's no, not a euphemism. She was, but, she was uh, a narrator kind of in... But I'll be playing my fiddle in Yank, <laughs> if you know what I mean. Excellent. Um, no, uh... <laughs> <laughs> no, but the Piper was a Boston Irish sort of fable, and uh, it's about a young girl, who, a young crippled girl, who um, plays the whistle and sort of has magical powers. And um, there's this character in the script that was called Ma Kelly, and it was originally written for a blousy 65 year old Irish woman, you know. And uh, I went in for the audition uh, to audition for the lead because they'd offered it to uh, Christiane Knoll, but they weren't sure she was going to be available, and so they were sort of auditioning other people to see wh- who was around. And by that, by the time I got in the room, they knew she was going to take it. And so Michael Bush, the director, says, Nancy, I'd like you to look at the character of Ma Kelly. I was like, um, lousy 65-year-old. Have you seen me lately? I go to the gym. Anyway. <laughs> so, the 65 part you can do, but... <laughs> Stretch. I can stretch older by like Holy 25 cow. years. I can I do that. that. Anyway, um, <laughs> so um, 
So I looked at it and I was like, oh, how do I do this? And then he talked to me about the part and how he wanted this part to kind of be the liaison from the onstage Irish band um, to the action on the stage. And I stupidly said, well, I play a little fiddle. If I practiced, maybe I and then the next thing I knew, Never. every day, two hours a day. But it's changed my life. I mean, I always wanted to be a, a, fiddle, a real fiddle player, and now it's, oh, that's cool. you know, it's going pretty well. And now you are, according to what's written on the sheet, all women. Yes. <laughs> I, liked, I like to cut out the competition. I like to do shows where I play all the women. I did a show called Jolson & Company years ago where I also played all yeah. the women. So, But, um, yeah, uh, David and Joe are my best friends from way back. David and I did Summerstock in... 1991 together. And um, they and had summer stock back then? Wow. <laughs> wow. This is getting hostile all the in way here. Back. I'm getting all, yeah, all yeah, like, back. like I should talk. <laughs> anyway, oh, so um, yeah, so da- David and Joe have been, you know, writing together since they were kids and and when I came on the scene, they started writing for me. And uh, I sang all of Joe's when Joe was in the BMI workshop, I sang all of his tunes there and um, well, not all of them. Carrie O'Malley sang a lot of them too. I got to give a shout out to Carrie O'Malley. Who cares? Um, and uh, so uh, so then they over the years they've uh, written parts for me in the various projects they've had and this was the big one because you know the three of us are equally obsessed with this era this sort of late 30s early 40s wartime era and um and uh, so yeah so they yeah, so I'll, I, I'll I play a lot myself in there too. yeah you are too Never man will, we're we're all from that time period we all <clears throat> we all were born in the wrong decade anyway uh so uh I play a lot of um, various radio personalities, and I also play a, um, uh, I guess, a lesbian sergeant. Is that what yeah, she is? Yeah. yeah I play yeah. a lesbian sergeant, which, <laughs> you know, I come by that honestly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> so maybe this is a good time to do a little performance here from the show. I yeah. Yeah, we're going to hear here. Yeah, we're going to hear uh, Nancy uh, singing a song called "Saddest Gal What Am," and uh, she's being backed up by some of the guys in our show: uh, Chris Carfizzi, Tyson Cop, and um, Daniel Shevlin. And our music director and conductor. Daniel Fayer is going to be on the keys. Yeah, and it, during the during in the show at this point, uh, we're starting to discover that um, maybe Stu is, likes boys better than girls, and uh, and how he's sort of dealing with that change in his life. And so then I come out as a radio singer, uh, talking about how my man doesn't seem quite the same since he went into the army. <laughs> All right. Something's changed. Rearranged I used to know the score But since my man got through with boot He ain't the way he was before He used to like my cook And now he likes his army spam He used to like his girly Now he likes his Uncle Sam Sure he ain't scrawny Smother me like honey on a honey ham I'm the saddest gal, what am I lost my man to Uncle Sam My man would try to score, I kept him in the minor league He never scored him, still she adored him And now it's me who has to beg to touch his 
army fatigues. His clothes are tighter now. Oh my, they're cleaner and nicer than mine. It's true. Oh sure, he's a fighter. So why when he says, Hey, toots, does he mean a guy? I miss the man who was a lion to my baby Tall and manly with a fine set of whiskers, but ain't fifty million men enough for you? Do you have to take mine too? Whisk 'em halfway around the world, give 'em silver stars and brass medals. He never used to wear jewelry. Good Lord, Sam, you're old enough to be his father. He used to whisper tender nothings 'neath the harvest moon. Sammy, I'm begging you, help me. Now all he talks about are muscles in his cherished platoon. Why does he care about men's muscles? He does the laundry now, cooks too. He even will clean a latrine. Do what? Oh, I'm in a quandary. Do tell. Talk true. Should I throw this lug out for someone new? But everywhere you look, the army's pulled the same old scam. Some scam. She's the saddest, saddest gal, but ever. Saddest peanut butter, minus jam. Used to call her gorgeous. Now it's mad. So, what has the rehearsal process been like? And 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 I, I'll start specifically with some of the choreography for this. This, yeah. this era, I'm sure, allows you to have a lot of fun with. A Jeffrey Liz yeah, in this era. I, <laughs> I love the 1930s, 1940s, uh, the 40s especially because there were there were a lot of uh, specific uh, dances related to the jitterbug and uh, that that kind of were born, the Shorty George, and um, I, I'm trying to use as much of that as I can so that these guys are actually doing what they would have done, obviously. I think that's that's part of the job of a choreographer. But the music just lends itself so well to movement. And um, in the second half of the show, um, there is a, a dream ballet, much like there would have been, you know, like for Oklahoma or Carousel. Um, yeah, all those Brothers. old musicals had a dream ballet. Yeah. So in in keeping with making this a, a real <clears throat> period piece, they put in a dream ballet. It's brilliant. And it is – we just finished it last week um, and living with that music for the summer has been such a pleasure. I did the show at Nymph. Uh, two years ago in 2005, but I didn't choreograph. I just played Artie. And when they came and asked if I'd choreograph earlier this year, I just absolutely jumped at the chance because this music is fantastic. And the guys have been fantastic just taking everything that I've given them, um, whether they're, you know, and, the, and the, the, the range of dance ability in the show is a wide range. And guys can, there are guys who are great dancers and guys who are movers. <clears throat> and they're all just taking everything and just just grabbing a hold of it and, and performing it beautifully. Uh, I couldn't be more proud of them because uh, they don't know me. They're just like, oh, what are we going to do? And I give it to them and they do it. So. And that's what's so nice about doing this show in a relatively low-profile environment, you know, out in Brooklyn at the Gallery Players. Uh, they, they really provide an environment for us to be truly creative and um, and 
work as a team. Sometimes when you get into more heavyweight theater, things get separated out a little bit. Yeah. And uh, and this is really a you know there is a vibe to it that's like hey guys let's put on a show yeah. you know and it's it uh, and of course that's you know period specific as well <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. So. Now, Nancy, I know you do, but um, I got the. I was overhearing Jeffrey. Do you both? Do you both have things going on at Birdland? Oh yeah, just <laughs> last night. Just did, yeah. Last night, Jeffrey rocked it at Birdland. <laughs> he uh, he does this show called Jazz Turns, where he takes modern musical theater songs and does a sort of jazz uh, arrangement of them, much like they used to do in the 30s and 40s. Yeah, and Nancy has a show that I actually went to see that inspired me to do my show called Ten Cents a Dance, which yeah, is it's based, based on my on album. Yeah, I do all twenties and thirties <clears throat> jazz. It's, it's a little fantastic. earlier, and I've got a big band, <clears throat> Ross Patterson, and his little big band, and uh, yeah. and it's it's all Artie Shaw and uh, you know old Teddy Grace tunes and Annette Hanshaw. It's, um, uh, it, what I like about it is um, what Jeffrey Jeffrey and I really love the this era because it's not as quaint and nostalgic as everybody makes it out to be. Yeah. Hollywood, and, really. Yeah. I think Hollywood uh, yeah. is and, and, responsible. Yeah, and, and, and a lot of times when people approach this material, they approach it with a certain amount of um, sweetness when in fact the people who were singing this and dancing this um, stuff at the time, they were they were badasses. Yeah. Bing Crosby was a drunk. He, you know what I mean? Crazy. Like these people were the hippest, uh, most sought after um, public personalities in the world. Yeah. And they were bad boys and bad girls. Uh, you know, uh, we just Ruth, didn't have YouTube and camera phones. Right. Well, Ruth, Edding, Ruth Edding was a Ruth Edding was a gangster mall. Yeah. Yeah. And her and her husband tried. Some crazy story about her boyfriend had her husband killed or some. I mean, like <laughs> this stuff is not how they portray it now. And yeah. and if you if you approach the music fr- from that understanding that they're that these people were living, you know, they were living on the edge and they were uh, they were the hipsters of their time. Well, and we had this conversation before about yeah. about every generation thinks that they invented sexiness. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, there it's sometimes true. there there was there was nothing sexier in the 1930s when they couldn't write the lyrics that they wanted to and they had to write lyrics that yeah. were more um, you know, had a little bit of a a a, mis, uh, a mystery about them. And that's even sexier. It's like, you know, the woman with a little bit of clothing on is much sexier mm-hmm. than a woman with no clothes. On. Well, to Depends on the woman, but um, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean. It's, yeah, it's, it's, it's the, this, some of this stuff is so sexy, and I think Joe and David have captured that. Yeah, remembering you, the song "Remembering You" is is actually a very sexy song, even though it's it's this love ballad. Well, people forget how bittersweet this era was. Yeah. I mean, everyone was you know they were just crawling out of the um, depression, and then suddenly they're just just they're plummeted into World War II. And uh, there was a real world weariness that um, that David and Joe really understand. And uh, so it makes it a joy for us to, to interpret it because, you know, everybody does revivals all the time because a lot of the time, though, that's the richest material. Um, oftentimes I say because those songwriters had a lot of practice. Mm. We have great songwriters now, but they... 
they don't have the opportunity to practice their craft the way that they did in the 20s, 30s, and 40s when people were just writing songs as fast as they could and yeah. throwing them up in the George White scandals and, and you yeah. know, the follies and things like that. They, they got to see their songs um, performed in front of a live audience once a week. The Gershwins had two new tunes a week. So did, you know, so did Rogers and Hart. And, um, and, you know, our brilliant writers now just don't quite have that forum. Yeah. Uh, I, around town, they're trying to create a forum for that, but it's not the same. It's not the same as having, you know, having all of these different uh, uh, variety shows showing new tunes every single week. Yeah. Um, although uh, Noah may have an opportunity to create something like that, and we want to create something yeah. like that. Um, but, yeah. Okay. So, so on, on October 28th, I'm doing Birdland, and I'm hoping to get Jeffrey to come on board. We're still in talks. Yeah. And... Uh, uh, so, Dealing with agents and yeah, it's very, very yeah. I mean, his people are talking yeah. to my people, and <laughs> you know, if I pay him enough, what? Oh. Wait a second. <laughs> Wait a minute. Hang on a second. Nobody gets paid here. What? Paying is passe. That's crazy. <laughs> All right. So Yank is playing with the Gallery Players, and that's galleryplayers.com. Yes. You can go on to for more information. It opens October twentieth. Yes. And runs through the first part of November. Yeah, mm-hmm. November. November yeah. 4th, and may extend to the 11th yeah. if everybody and, and, rushes yeah, out there. Hearing, and gets, yeah. We've been hearing good things about a possible extension because ticket sales are going well. So we were, were encouraged to believe that. Yeah, and this show, I mean, people should really come out and see this show. I mean, this is, if you want to see uh, two of the brightest new stars on the um, the musical theater writing front, David and Joe Zelnick are it. And I've been yeah. saying this for, you know, 10 years. Uh, and finally, people are getting on board and believing me and believing what these guys can do. But uh, th- this show is uh, not your grandma's musical. So. All right. Well, Nancy Anderson, Jeffrey Denman, thank you so much for coming down and chatting with us about the show and wish you the best of luck in all your endeavors. Thank you. Thanks. The Call Board. Victoria Edwards will perform in her second cabaret, Taking a Chance at the Duplex, on October 27th and 29th with shows at 10 p.m. and 7 p.m. respectively. Following her sold-out cabaret, The Road to Love, last spring, Edwards ponders her life so far and what she's ready to put faith in the future. For more information and reservations, visit or call The Duplex. Casting is complete and announced for the Roundabout Theatre Company's production of the Hitchcockian thriller Meet Slapstick, The 39 Steps. Charles Edwards is locked as the lead, being supported by cast members Arnie Burton, Jennifer Farron, and Cliff Saunders. Well, a whole shitload of people have joined the 24-hour plays on Broadway. I suggest you check out our website, broadwaybullet.com. In the show notes for Volume 133, we have a lot of the names. Uh, Playwrights scheduled to create the six new plays include David Lindsay Abair, Julia Jordan, Warren Lee, and Teresa Ribic. Kwame Kwe Arma joins the previously announced directors, who include Christian Parker and Ari Edelson. Singer Nellie McKay will be the evening's musical guest, the 24 Our company's seventh annual star-studded event is slated for October 22nd at 8 p.m. in the American Airlines Theater. Proceeds will benefit Working Playground. For more information, visit www.24play.com. Tony-winning Michael Mayer, as well as Philip Koltoff and C. Warren Moses, will be honored at the annual awards dinner and gala for TheaterWorks USA, the not-for-profit professional theater for family audiences. The gala will boast performances from a lot of great people, including John Gallagher Jr., Lauren Pritchard, Seth Rudetsky, and the Children's Aid Society Choir. Spring Awakenings' John Gallagher Jr. will present the award to his director, Michael Mayer, at the October 22nd celebration. TheaterWorks USA's Good Works Award, which was established in 1985, is awarded to individuals who have made outstanding contributions in the field of business, philanthropy, and or the arts. The New York Musical Theater Festival has announced its 2007 awards and excellence winners. 
which will be presented November 4th at a gala to be held at the Hudson Theatre. Unlocked won the much-coveted Best in Fest Award voted on by the audience members. Other winners include Boy in the Bathroom for Most Promising New Musical and Excellence in Book, The Yellow Wood for Excellence in Music, Such Good Friends for Excellence in Lyrics and Excellence in Directing, and Going Down Swinging for Outstanding Ensemble Performance. For a complete list of all the winners, visit nymf.org, and you can also pick up tickets for the gala, which are reasonably priced at $600. The Callboard is brought to you by the following sponsored listings. One Hit Wonder is a musical about a man on the cusp of middle age who meets up with a band of misfits and tries one last time to make it in the music biz. Gil is at a crossroads in his life. His wife wants security, but he can't seem to let go of his dream of becoming a musician. Tom, his mailman friend, and a clueless cellmate of Tom's, joins Gil's quest for musical greatness. So, does the band become famous? Well, that's up to you. If you are interested in bringing One Hit Wonder to the stage, contact Gil O'Brien at RoboGil, that's R-O-B-O-G-I-L, at Yahoo.com, or call him at 347-409-9243 to talk about a financing partnership that will make One Hit Wonder a reality. If you're looking for any recording services here in New York City, I've got a great studio here in Times Square, uh, specialized in vocal work. Also, all sorts of instrumental stuff. All styles, theater, pop, rock, R&B, a little bit of everything. Got some reasonable prices. If you are interested or you know somebody who's looking for a recording, please just give me a buzz at 646-345-3433. Or you can email info at broadwaybullet.com. Now let's get on with the program and the eagerly awaited interview, I'm sure. Close. Aaron's and Flaherty are possibly the last, hopefully not the last, but at the moment the last of the great duos that are working on Broadway consistently. And they've got a new show at the Lincoln Center called The Glorious Ones, which is actually their fourth Lincoln Center show and their sixth with uh, Andre Bishop. Andre Bishop. <laughs> and they are here in the studio to chat about their new show, their career, and a lot of stuff going on. And, uh, Lynn Flaherty, Stephen... Uh, <laughs> Lynn Aaron, Stephen Flaherty. That's correct. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for having us, Michael. Thank you. Thanks Everybody gets in. us confused. That's right. We're point. interchangeable. Right. <laughs> no, you are not. <laughs> well, you'd be surprised. So there are certain days when I, I'm thinking, well, what should I wear today? And I'll just happen to put on a blue shirt. And then we'll go to go to an interview or a session or whatever, and Lynn will be wearing the identical color of blue. Right. So it's a little it happens very creepy. often. <laughs> it's, it's making yeah. us nervous. I know. <laughs> uh, I hope the mess up doesn't continue. I'm trying not to be starstruck here. You definitely are, are one of my favorite composition teams. I've oh, enjoyed your you. music for a very long time. Thank you. And, uh, and got a chance to do Once on this Island, uh, obviously. Right. A, a white cast. That's, <laughs> we were, that's all right. <laughs> and we had a country piano player who couldn't quite do the island rhythm, so uh, it was a lot of fun. But. It's, a, it's a new interpretation. <laughs> so I guess the Antilles via Nashville must have been. I don't know. <laughs> well, before we get into everything about your career, maybe let's start off before people forget and tell us a little bit about your new musical, The Glorious Ones, which is just open. Uh, it's in previews and opening shortly at the yes, Lincoln Center. Yeah. We just started previews last Thursday. We open on November 5th. Um, it's a crazy show. It's uh, I, it's very hard to describe it. It's it's set in the world of Commedia dell'arte, and the minute you say that, everybody goes, "Oh, I don't know what that is," or "I don't care about that world." But it's it's actually a show of comedy. Some of it very physical and vulgar, um, and it's also a show of these high emotions that become very universal by the end of the show. It's it's a really really interesting and. and um, 
kind of wonderful show. We're, we're having a great time. We have the cast from Heaven. They're phenomenal. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. I, actually, we, we were, we're fortunate that a lot of our cast has been living and breathing the show for about a year now because we had our uh, first New York workshop, which was a three-week workshop, uh, last November. And then we had a Pittsburgh uh, tryout uh, in my hometown of Pittsburgh at the Pittsburgh Public Theater, which was a, a standalone engagement this past um, April and May. And so a lot of these actors have been really living and breathing the characters. And not only have they informed the writing, but these are very strong personalities, these actors. So a lot of the, the writing has been tailored to, to, uh, to do, but to, what to their do, special their, talents. Their specialties yeah. and their, yeah. their, each one is just amazing. We're, we're, it's it's great. Every night, I mean, I, I've never laughed so much on any show that we've ever done. I've been hysterical for about, you know, eight months now, just <laughs> laughing constantly. Well, it's the, great. The funny thing is, you know, you, with every production, there's usually one cut-up in the, in the cast, you know, like one jokester. And it, on the glorious ones, every one of the seven actors happens to be a jokester. So it's, it's been very lively during rehearsals, I have to say. <laughs> So definitely having a lot of fun with that. Mm. Yeah. For sure. Who came up with the concept for this show? Did you, did they approach you? Did you find this yourselves? Or uh, we we found it ourselves. I uh, the, there's a it's based on a novel by a terrific novelist named um, Francine Prose, and uh, a friend of mine introduced me to the novel a number of years ago, and I always thought it would make a terrific musical, and I brought it to Stephen, and we've been working on it together for a while, and uh, um, it's finally coming to fruition. Um, it's a wonderful novel, but very difficult to kind of figure out how to do it. So it took us a while, but I think we've finally done it to our own satisfaction anyway. And um, and that's that's how it gestated. And Lincoln Center has been involved in its development uh, over several. They did a workshop for us originally, and, and now they're producing it. So we're, we're thrilled to be there. Yeah. <laughs> well, now I understand there isn't a cast recording yet, of course, or, right, or, or right. a demo, but um, one of the songs was recorded by uh, Mary and Maisie. Mary and Maisie and Jason mm-hmm. Danbury, yeah. <laughs> they, did, they did the beautiful uh, love duet. And um, and there are a couple other songs that are being done by singers already. Um, the, the, you know, there are some songs in the score that are very uh, standalone and, and quite wonderful, if I do say so myself. <laughs> and um, they, they, they've been, you know, performed uh, and, and covered and stuff like that. So we're, we're happy about that. And, and a lot of the songs are actually about the creation of art, you know, sort of what we all do. So obviously uh, actors are really drawn to these songs. And I, I think a lot of it is the subject matter, too. So we've been lucky. Marin and Jason have been singing Opposite You, and they've recorded it. And Brian Stokes Mitchell and Patti Lapone have both been singing a song called uh, I Was Here. Uh, around town, which is very thrilling. Yeah, Stokes just did it uh, at Carnegie Hall the other night. And Actually, he didn't. Oh, well, I'm so confused. Wait, <laughs> he didn't do it? Oh, it was, it was his to first do it. encore, and, and apparently he talked a lot. Oh, and heavens. so, oh, yeah, they pulled the plug, but it, it, it almost made it. <laughs> <laughs> well, he planned to because I rewrote the lyrics for him. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, let's take a moment and uh, listen to the song here. Great. We actually. Grabbed a copy. Great. This is sticking the show. So this is Mary Maisie, Jeffrey, Jason, Jason, Jason Danieli, and Opposite You. Great. As the curtain slowly opens to reveal a starry sky, we see figures in a garden to silhouettes. You and I. Isabella wants the moon 
nothing will appease her as she hums a haunting little tune. Arlecchino sees her, he desires her, she inspires him, so he steals the moon from on high. What a start! Simple and comic and true. And I was born for the part, born to play opposite you. I could teach you all my love. I would go where you could lead me. We were born to make it so. We were born to fly. We were born to fly. I would give up all I have. I would give up all I have. Just to be with you forever. Just to be forever. Heart and soul and flesh and bone. Yours until I die. In the music of another age, I was born to be you. Born to stand beside you on a stage, ever to be near you. There always used to be the duos, you know, it's Rogers and Hammerstein, yeah. Rogers yeah. and Hart, and you know, and Neb. yeah, Kander and I mean, you know, the list goes on, and it seems to like have kind of stopped with you. Um, you guys have written what? This is nine, ten? Oh shows? gosh, I mean, more? I and don't you probably even know. ten or eleven or yeah. something. A lot. a lot, a lot, of produced, shows. and then not some un- unproduced, <laughs> and then a lot of we've done some film and you know some television and all kinds of. It's stuff. It's been great. We, we we've yeah. been writing together, gee. Almost twenty five years. Almost twenty five yeah. years. Yeah, twenty four. But the, yeah. in answer to your question, I don't know the answer to that. I mean, I do know that um, there are some. Well, obviously, there's some wonderful uh, teams around and working. Um, uh, you know, what I'm wondering is maybe is the corporate pressure there to just kind of audition individuals for newer people, and that you were kind of already in the door and established working together. Or, it just, I, I really don't see that. I mean, I see people, of course, who work together. There are young, but a lot yeah. of young teams. Not that. There are a lot of young teams that I'm aware of who are, you know, just trying to get their foot in the door at this point. And I think it's probably, um, it's just a function of of, ha- of having the, the luck to meet somebody that you can have a long-term relationship with as a, as a writing team. I think that's really hard. And I think we were lucky to meet and lucky that we enjoyed working with one another and it seems to have stuck. But I, I think it's a really, really hard thing. And I don't think it's the end of collaborations such as mm-hmm. ours, but I just think that, you know, they, they don't happen that often. And I, I, I don't know that it's anything to do with the times or, or anything. I, as I say, I do know there are a lot of young teams coming up um, who I could name and um, very talented. But I also do think that there's another 
you know, there's another sensibility creeping into theater, which is, you know, the sort of self-contained uh, composer lyricist or sometimes the self-contained composer lyricist book writer. And you see more of that now, you know, Bill Finn and pe- people like that who, who just sort of do their own thing. I think one of the challenges of being a writing team, though, is it's like any good marriage. You know, you, you realize that you develop as individuals, and at the same time, you're also developing as a team. So obviously, your interests and tastes change and morph along the way, and it's finding that interesting interaction with where you are now and how that interfaces with your uh, your writing partner. And I think that that really leads to exciting work, because I, I, I think I wouldn't have written the same shows, uh, possibly, you know, without you know, Lynn being a part of that. And and, and certainly, uh, if I had written them either on my own or with somebody else, they would be totally different in sensibility, too. So I think that's one of the things that's great about a writing team, because it's not just about you know, my individual contribution or Lynn's or any collaborator's uh, individual contribution. It's really about sort of the the kinetic thing that happens whenever you get creative people in a room together making something together. Yeah, that other eye, that other ear, yeah. <laughs> that person to slap you around and say, that's terrible, you know. <laughs> well, well, the, the interesting thing is whenever I, I met Lynch, uh, Lynn has written uh, music as well as lyrics, and I've written lyrics as well as music. And whenever we met, I was actually writing my own lyrics at the, at the time, sort of by default, you know. And I thought, gee, I really need to shake, shake this up a bit. And uh, I, I was much more from the classical world, and Lynn was from the improv world, and it was great to see how those not two ways... Not improv as an improv. I was <laughs> no, she was not a stand-up, but, <laughs> no. the idea, but the idea of taking a loose idea and, and throwing it uh, into the room, saying, yeah. hey, let's play with this. And in fact, I had never, until that point, written with somebody else in the room at the same time. You know, and I think right. a lot of people find that interesting. Like, how can you write on the spot? And it's basically, you know, we're in the dark trying to find our way to a song moment or to an emotional moment together. And sometimes, and it's the old thing, is it the words first or the music? And some, and it's both, you know, and sometimes it's both at the same time, which is really great when that happens. That's always exciting. I, I came from the world of um, jingles, and I, I did a little show called Schoolhouse Rock, and I did a lot of... Um, uh, television work, and, and that's the world where you just go into a room, you sit at a piano, you bang on the keys and say, what do you think of this? Bang, 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 what do you think of that? And you just sort of make it up on the spot, and Stephen is from a very different Yeah, I used to wear I used to wear black, and I had a beard, and I would lock myself <laughs> in a little teeny hovel and stay in there until profound thoughts, or not so profound thoughts, would hit me, and then I would emerge from there with something written down. So obviously this look really... Look at now. Look at me now. <laughs> yeah. So obviously this, or this to me. <laughs> it really shook things up in a good way. <laughs> Now, how do you pick your projects? I know you've done different things. Sometimes yeah. you shepherd it the whole way from the beginning, right. and I know sometimes you've kind of, I don't know if it's by audition process, but you've taken on, for instance, Ragtime was very yeah. much mm-hmm. the yeah. live ends. Yes, that was dream. Most of the time we, we find our own projects and we start them. We come up with an idea that we're very interested in. We talk about it and we either pursue it or we don't, but, you know, we option our own properties and we... Um, you know, we decide what we want to work on and we, we begin to write it and eventually we find a producer for it if we're lucky, which we have been. Um, but in some cases, a producer will bring an idea to us and, you know, ask us if we want to do it and, and we say yay or nay. And <laughs> Ragtime was one of those. Susical was one of those. We, they, those were brought to us. Um, and, uh, you know, the, re- the rest is the rest. <laughs> uh, and oddly enough, Ragtime and Susical, they're the only two projects that we've ever done that started in the commercial arena. Everything we else we've ever done has started in the not-for-profit and, you know, some have transferred and, you know, to Broadway, that sort of thing. But, uh, 
a show like Ragtime is a, sh- is a show that needs to be produced big. You know, it's not something that I think two writers would take on and say, okay, now we're, we're going to do this cast of 52, which is how many <laughs> we had in Broadway. This cast of 52 orchestra of 28 show. You know, there's no way that you can tell that story in a chamber way. You know, but oddly enough, uh, Dessa Rose, which is uh, an- another show we did at Lincoln Center, which is I, in a certain way... F- for my money, a companion piece to Ragtime, and then it's about an earlier part of American history and sort of musically there are actually some links there. Um, that was a, a show that even though it, it was a very expansive idea, we knew early on that we wanted to tell most of the story in close-up. If it were a film, there would be a lot of close-ups. So that, even though it was an expansive idea, that wanted to be told uh, as a chamber musical. So it was totally different. And uh, so that, that was something that we generated ourselves and brought to Lincoln Center. Well, kind of speaking of that, one thing I've always found impressive with with you is you managed to somehow find a way to really get into the musical idioms of, of mm. the stories that you're telling, mm-hmm. you know, the Caribbean flavors of Once on this Island, the ragtime flavors, obviously, of ragtime, yeah. and, and, and the Irish feel of a man of no importance. And somehow through all of this style changing, though, I think you managed to keep a core that is pretty identifiably... That's nice you, to hear. You guys. Yeah. And I, I like I, that. <laughs> I think there's a sensibility there. You know, it's, it's an interesting thing. It's, a, I guess, any good chef who tries to use these ingredients, and hopefully, even though, you know, I'd be using these musical ingredients, there would be something of the sensibility of the chef or the composer that would, would come through, and you'd say, oh, that's, a, that's something that this person would have created. You know, and if somebody, uh, another writer, would have taken the same material uh, and done it well, I, I would think that the show would be very much like them even though you know it's set in the same musical place but uh you know one of the one of the things we try to do is never repeat ourselves yeah. I, don't, I don't know if anybody's ever noticed that but our shows are really <laughs> disparate and different in size and worlds that we you know are interested in and um uh it's because we're interested in a lot of different idioms and musical idioms and and cultural worlds and so on and and I think that we've been had a lot of pleasure in trying to channel those worlds both lyrically and, and musically and, and really delve into the heart of, a, you know, for me, you know, a black slave or a, a, an African-American ragtime player or, a, a, a you know, an Irish uh, bus conductor or, you know, in the case of, of the show we're doing now, an insane Italian comedians, you know, it's, it's, it's a, I love doing that. I love to try and, and write the way they speak and, um, you know, and Stephen's very adept at, at uh, finding the musical uh, world to th- he can create that world and still make it Stephen Flaherty's. So it's it's kind of great. I love doing that. Well, while we're kind of on that topic of different things, why don't we take a listen from the soundtrack or the I always say soundtrack <laughs> cast album of <laughs> of a man of no importance. Yeah, my interns hate me for calling him soundtrack. Hey, that's what it says but, in, the, in the record store. They're under yeah. soundtracks. Uh, no, but we're going to listen to the streets of Dublin Great. from a man of no oh, importance. Um, is there any like little setup that that should be done with the oh, song? Or? I'll give you a little setup. Um, it's it's sung by a young man who is um, uh, about to take an older man sort of out on the town for the night and show him the street poetry of of Dublin. And one of the interesting things about this song is that everybody that's listed in it, mentioned in it, all the names and the, the things that they do are were real in Dublin in the 60s. They, I, I did a little research and I found all these interesting Dublin characters and I wove them into the song. So these people once upon a time lived. All right, let's take a listen. I don't want to stand on the stage with a sword. I went to a pantomime once. I was bored. I'm not a poetical sort of a person like you. When I need a poem, the streets. 
Poets and the gutters will do There's Tommy Flanagan who lights the gas lamps 190 lamps in Phoenix Park alone He's done it drunk for over 57 years In Dublin And down on Henry Street is Mad John Maher Old rambling Johnny with the face like hammered meat But Johnny singing brings a Dublin man to tears I don't know the words to tell you how it feels Nor how to put it in a rhyme But if you come with me you'll know How the lamps in the park look like God in the dark as they glow on the streets of Dublin The dealers hawking and the dockers yelling The buskers banging and the ragmen ringing bells And there's Maureen whose door is always open for All Dublin And Tony Coyley with his racing pigeons It's like religion How he lives to fly those birds He swears they travel for a hundred miles or more I don't know The kind of words that you might say But I can put it my own way And if you come with me you'll know That those birds on their wing Are a beautiful thing as they blow the streets of Dublin And there's music like nothing you've heard If you know the right jukebox to play There are glasses to raise in the praise Of surviving the day Down where Miss Kitty Farrelly is pouring whiskey And Frankie Donahue is lighting her cigar A smoky Denver working men don't bring the wine It's the laughter of fellas with stories to tell Men who love to get drunk and raise through fucking hell Now you'll come out with me and you'll see what you're missing in life on the streets of Dublin. 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 On the streets of As a team, you seem to not be too utterly concerned and worried about how commercial a project is going to be. Um, is that a conscious decision, or is, do you just write with... <laughs> we consciously decide not to. Yes, exactly. Every show we do. I think, for, uh, speaking for myself, I, I, I think if I can use Joseph Campbell's phrase, follow your bliss, that is musically what I try to do. I try to run towards things that I'm excited about musically, you know, and I would like to think that I'm, if I'm excited about that musically, there will be some audience out there that will be ex as equally excited about that, and I just run with a lot of passion towards it. We get approached <laughs> with a lot of projects, and, you know, they're really commercial sounding. They really sound like they could be commercial, but for the most part, 
we just they they just seem like anybody could do them and so why do them what you know what i mean it's it's they don't sound unique enough or special enough and and it, and it takes a really interesting unique kind of um challenging project to get us interested and and for the most part those are you know the things we've worked on and and um you know we love them all i mean we've we've had a wonderful time on them all even the hardest of them and the most painful of them you know <laughs> uh we 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 get our satisfaction out of out of writing what we love and you know if they if they do well and go to broadway or don't go to broadway it almost doesn't matter um because you know we we get so much pleasure out of the writing were you surprised at the lack of positive reception in New York to Seussical when it when that came mm-hmm. out. <laughs> a collective hum. I mean, it, it, it wasn't New York, just New York per se. We we had uh, a killer out-of-town trial. Yeah. I use the word killer <laughs> specifically in, in Boston. It was like a... It was sort of the nightmare tryout. The nightmare was, and I was turning 40 at the time, too. So happy birthday, let's, Steve. Let's put it this way. We were hysterical together in a lot of bars in yeah. Boston <laughs> late at night. But, you know, I don't think we were totally surprised that there was a lack of critical reception. Um, what I'm surprised by, in a certain way, weirdly enough, is that the show, you know, it went on and has gone on to be this huge... Well, that's what I was going to say. Do you feel vindicated by the fact it's that it's... great. It's you know, wonderful. Isn't it's it the most licensed show of the past one year? One of. Yeah, I think, you know, it's always either the most or one of the most, but it's up there. And um, it's, it's, it's terrific vindication, but also, you know, we did go back to work on it. And we felt that, you know, in addition to all the problems that we had with the production and with the... You know, the physical issues and producerial issues and all the issues that flew around. We, you know, we didn't do uh, quite finish our work before it came to Broadway uh, with all the things that were going on. So, you know, after the show closed, we went back and took another look, a number of looks, and really revised it and made it what it is now, which I think is pretty great. And, um, you know, so what can you say? You know, everybody has these experiences, and here we are drinking coffee and on the air or on the website or whatever we're on, on the pod. Where are we? (laughs) Have you ever seen any of the smaller community productions of some of the shows? Yeah, it's it's wonderful. And and, uh, we were lucky that uh, there was this lovely, lovely production at the Lucille Lortel this past summer. Uh, done by Theater Works USA and directed by Marsha Milgram Dodge, which was, I thought, one of the most enchanting, simple, fun-filled productions of Seussical that I had ever seen. And it, and it felt very much in the spirit of the original workshop uh, that we did uh, you know, all these many years ago in t- Toronto and it had a real sense of play um, to it and seeing uh, audiences react to it and hearing the song sung beautifully and simply and heart- with, with a lot of heart. Uh, it was it was a joy. It but was, using oven mitts and yeah. you know turkey basters and colanders and rubber inner tubes <laughs> and you know just completely wacky <laughs> props and you know and, and they all worked. The, an inner tube became the the bird's nest and you know all that kind of stuff. It was it was wonderful. I saw actually I saw another great little production at NYU done by NYU students and that you you drew on the floor with chalk and you you know got to blow up balloons and pop them and there were rubber bands that you stretched and it was it was just this very interactive silly show it was perfect so it can be done anywhere you know now and and is done almost everywhere and um, and we're very happy about it. You know, it, it was the child that didn't do well in high school and grew up <laughs> to have a, a good career anyway. You know? so. Well, as I mentioned, our production was a little bit odd, but I'm wondering if you've heard of any, any particularly strange production. What you would maybe eyebrow-raising productions of Once on this Island? 
wow. which I have to say is absolutely one of my top five favorite musicals. Oh, yeah, I, I listen you. to that so much. I've listened Thanks. to the London cast recording, and it's just Thanks. that's a good recording. That's a good <laughs> recording, yeah. isn't yeah. it? We, we did it in Abbey Road Studio B, where Hey Jude was recorded. Yeah. So just for me, just to even be doing anything of mine in that studio, kind of made the whole experience. Yeah, really. that's John Yap. We've John done a Yap. number of records with him. He's a terrific producer. Um, yeah, well, once on this island, you know, it gets done with you know, by a cast of eighty-six children. I've seen do the show. Okay. Uh, all, one teacher uh-huh. made all their costumes. It was unbelievable, and they just had a big um, uh, benefit down in New Orleans for the children of Katrina. And they did once on this island down there with all kids who'd been through the storm and you know had lost their homes or you know had problems during Hurricane Katrina. And then they brought them to New York for one performance. So that was fabulous. And and you know there are just so many incarnations. Catholic girl schools, you know. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yes. My aunt Shirley like in, in, in uh, St. Louis, Missouri, saw an all-female white production <laughs> on this island. I said, "But it's that a lot." That ups us. Yeah. We're all white. And I said, but <laughs> aunt Shirley, I said, "Yeah, I couldn't figure out how they did the love story with just girls." And she said, "Oh no, there was one boy they imported." But there are many, many different ways to see it. But uh, the Katrina project is really exciting. It's called After the Storm, and uh, there's also a documentary that's being made about the experience of these kids Who coming together putting putting the on show. the show uh, and it's, and and it really uh, gave new life to uh, the St. Mark's Art Center down there and it really opened the doors again and, and we should say if anybody wants to contribute yeah. to this uh, not-for-profit organization called After the Storm you can find it online and uh, contribute money to help you know re- rejuvenate the, the, the area the area yeah it's a good cause they're great. And, and that production was directed by Jerry McIntyre, who was in our original Broadway company of Once on this yeah. Island. So it's just this extended family that keeps on growing with every show. It's, it's interesting. There's something about that show. It's, it's, it really is magical. It's infused with something, and I cannot put my finger on it, but everybody that comes in contact with the show, either as a performer or as a listener, it, I would like to think it's one of those rare examples of theater changing people's lives for the better. You know, certainly with After the Storm, it, it, it really did. Yeah, you in know? a concrete way, yeah. which was nice, yeah. Now, how surprised were you when Once in this Island did go to Broadway? Because oh, back was, in the early 90s, well, there weren't yeah. quite as many smaller shows that uh, moved no. to Broadway. And if, it, and if it was being done now, I don't think that it would necessarily. Uh, I think that it was of its time in that regard. It would be very hard to move it to Broadway now because look what's on Broadway, you know? It's a different kind of show. Um, so, but at the time, I don't think we were that surprised. I mean, it got a rave in the Times. and Oh, know, I was, was surprised. Was, I, mean, I, I, I wasn't. I was always hoping, but I was thrilled when, when I got oh, that sure. news. Yeah. We have a great photograph of us that um, we're standing under the marquee with our pointing up at it as they're changing the sign to be Once on this Island on the marquee on Broadway, our first Broadway show. And there are quotes that say, you know, magnificent and splendid, but they're the quotes from the show before. Yeah. <laughs> they're from the, 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 the show, uh, the Truman Capote oh, yeah. show, True. True. And that's why I love it. Once on this Island, then on the side, yes. it said, Robert Morse is spectacular. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, thinking, I'm trying to imagine Robert Morse in Once on this Island. I, I don't know if I can. <laughs> Uh, then one of your bigger productions, and it was uh, 
it was definitely a big production. Didn't necessarily go as commercially as great as everybody hoped, but again, I think there's a lot of great music involved, and it was uh, another Lincoln's Lincoln Center collaboration with my favorite year. Yeah. Yes, yes, absolutely. We were in the Vivian Vogue yeah. one. Was that, your, that was your first Lincoln Center one, then? That was our first Lincoln Center one, but it was our second show, uh, or our third show, actually, with Andre Bishop and Ira Weitzman, who had both been at um, Lincoln Center, uh, excuse me, at Playwrights yeah. Horizons, and then moved over to Lincoln Center, so we sort of followed them uh, with that third show. And, um, yeah, it didn't do as well as we hoped, that's for sure. Um, we're, we're now actually, interestingly, in the process of rewriting it. Uh, and we think we've done that very well. And in our in the, the hindsight of wisdom, <laughs> you know, we were young writers, and it was a big, big show. And we just, uh, you know, there were things that we, we've solved recently that we thought, why didn't we think of that then? But we didn't know enough. You know, we just weren't as, I don't think, as polished in terms of, you know, knowing what what's needed, and of course, when you're in a big production and it's going like a, a you know a barreling ahead toward opening night, and you're restricted in terms of the amount of hours you can rehearse and stuff, it's uh, you know it's very difficult, even in the best of circumstances, and even if you're you know you've been doing it for years, it's it's tough. So, we was that were, the first musical you did that you didn't write the book on? Um, okay. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you think maybe that had anything to do with it? Was it a different thing giving up the mm, the bookend? No, I, I I love giving up the bookend. Actually. <laughs> <laughs> give it up. Give it up. Love not it. a control freak. No, <laughs> not, no, not at all. I mean, I enjoy writing book yeah. too when I think I can. You know, when I think it's the right project for me. But um, in the case of my favorite year or Ragtime or Man of No Importance, I I don't think I would have been the right book writer. And I I love working with book writers. Our book writer on uh, my favorite year was Joe Dar. Joseph Darty, who's a terrific writer, um, lives in L.A., and so the long-distance collaboration proved slightly problematic. But he was wonderful and did a great job. And, you know, he had never done a musical before, so we were all mm. a little afloat. You know, young writers, guy had never done a musical. You know, we, we, it, it, there were some issues. But as I say, we were rewriting it with Joe again, and he's done fabulous work, and we all have. So we're, we're happy about it, and we're hoping, you know, it'll, it'll come back again. Also, speaking for myself, when we first did it, it was in 1992, and I think I really identified with Benji Stone, who's the young writer in the piece, because uh, when, when I first saw the film, it was about a, a young writer living in Brooklyn with dreams of becoming part of show business across, you know, across the river in Manhattan. And I was living in Brooklyn, you know, so that's sort of who I was then. And uh, I don't think I knew quite enough about Alan Swan, the character who, who's played but by Peter O'Toole. But now I do. Yeah, right. All these, <laughs> right. Old over that's the right. All these cocktails later. I totally. Yeah. So, so I think going back to my favorite year, I think I've had personally more to bring to Alan Swan, to bring to that character. And oddly enough, most of the rewrites have been for that character. Yeah. So Alan Swan has now almost has a completely new score right. in, in right. my favorite year. Well, we're going to play one of the songs from that show, the opening number. Great. Oh, good. It's a great uh, opening. We like this opening. <laughs> Big Broadway sound. 20 million people. Does this need any setup? Or? No, it's just uh, the, the five, uh, you know, just a few minutes before uh, a live television show in the 50s goes on the air and all the backstage chaos. 20 million people. No, 20 million plus. 20 million plus Americans watching us, curling up on sofas, crawling in their pets, passing out the popcorn, turning on their television sets. 20 million ordinary folks, and your careers go down the drain if they don't like the jokes. 90 little minutes to get by in front of 20 million. 
Arcade. A great guy. This is crap. Honest. And these are my fellow riders. Cy Benson, head rider, also known as the ulcer who walks like a man. And here's Alice Miller and Herb Lee, two people joined at the Funny Bone. Cy, these jokes are old enough to vote. You gotta make some cuts. No cuts. Nobody touches my material. Nobody. Cy, you cut those dogs out of the monologue yet? Dead and gone, King, baby. 20 million reasons we're guaranteed to bomb. 20 million small catastrophes, but we're calm. Facing every challenge, performing at our peak. 90 little minutes of the green in front of 20 million people. KC Downing, assistant to the producer. She's nuts about me. KC, we all set for our regular date after the show? Regular date? We don't have a regular date. We had one date at which you completely humiliated me. I thought you liked my walrus impression. I was planning to eat those breadsticks. I am in love with the brick girl. It felt like paradise. It felt like war. It felt like, it felt like 1954. It was the best time I'd ever known. My first jokes were on the air. My first credit shining there. Benji Stone. Benji. Benji Stone. Stone. Telephone. Hello? Benjamin, darling, this is your mother. Mom, it's almost showtime. I'm calling only to remind you you're coming here for dinner tomorrow night. Uh, yeah, I know. You're bringing cake? Oh, Mom, I'm kind of busy now. Because if you are, I'll tell Rookie that he shouldn't stop at Coverman's when he picks up the newspaper in the morning. Uh, I'll bring cake, okay? Fruit or crumbs? Whatever you want. Benjamin, darling, I want whatever you want. Crumb. Fruit would be better. Fruit! Why are you it's Saturday night. I need a new zipper. This is crap. They told me they cut King Tut last night. If only we had another week. Cavalcade. 
just one little PS about that song. I'd like to uh, identify the orchestrator of the song, who's Michael Starobin, oh, yeah. who's fantastically talented. Uh, we did uh, Once on this Island together and My Favorite Year. And now we're working together in the trenches of musical comedy, doing the glorious ones. And we are having the time of our lives. We're having a wonderful He's time. He's done an amazing, great job. amazing job. He's yeah. great. And speaking of that, I guess the various composers, it depends. How, how, how closely do you work with the orchestrator and how much do you rely on the orchestrator to get the sound? The orchestrator and I are Siamese twins. We have to understand one another not only artistically but uh, personally. And we have to find a common language because it's really about focusing the ear in the way that a lighting designer would focus uh, the viewer's eye. So uh, we spend a lot of time talking aesthetics and style, and then it's trying to come come down to what is the final instrumentation, how many instruments are we going to use, what kinds of in instruments, what are the different ways that we can do this. And um, I just, for whatever reason, find myself using a lot of cinematic terms and speaking with an arranger, talking about, like, this is a long shot, this is a close-up, this is a crossfade, this pans from here to there. And uh, like a film, you're trying to... Um, direct the eye, but also the ear uh, to, to do these shifts, you know, musically and dramatically. And uh, that kind of language, I think, really helps, as opposed to measure two trumpet, you know. <laughs> but oddly enough, when we're sitting in an orchestra rehearsal and yeah. before we've gone into the show, I sit here, Stephen sits to my left, and the orchestrator sits to his left. And they'll play an orchestration, and I'll start to, you know, feel something, and I'll, go, and I'll whisper to Stephen something very... Um, Character-driven. You know, Character-driven. Yeah. Like, it doesn't sound like Mother at this point in the show. She's going through a dramatic crisis, and it sounds really happy. And then Stephen turns and goes, Measure 42. That's the, right. Uh, the the Boeing <laughs> should not be this kind of right. Boeing. It should be this kind of and Boeing. And all technical. I don't know what he's talking yeah. about, but it always works. Well, that's, 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 that, to me, is one of the joys <laughs> of music, because half of it is total passion, and the other side is total science. And so it's basically getting the passionate idea out first, so then you can lasso it with the science and say, oh, that should be a B-flat rather than a B-natural, you know, and that that is part of the great fun of it for me. I, I just only know that. the passion part. Yeah. I don't yeah. know what all those little black yeah. dots on the page are. So I'm the are. interpreter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so I'm curious, too, about how, how you first hooked up with Andrew Bishop as... Well, um, oddly enough, we were sort mm. of discovered by a, a wonderful guy named Ira Weitzman, who is the head of musical theater development at Lincoln Center Theater. I hope that's his right title. I think it is. Um, guru, I believe. The guru, is his title. that's what we call him. <laughs> the, 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 the guru. Hallowed Ira Weitzman. Um, when we were uh, very young writers, we had uh, we were working on a, on a, uh, a show, and we presented two songs from it at the ASCAP workshop, which is a very well-known workshop here in New York. You get up on a stage, you bring a couple of singers, and you present uh, some songs, and then there's a, a panel of experts who comment on your songs. And it's sort of good experience for young writers who want to learn how to present and who want to get some feedback from experienced um, people. And so we did that, and uh, at the end of the presentation, the waters kind of parted, and this person came toward us and he said, how do you do? I'm Ira Weitzman from Playwrights Horizons. Who are you? I want you to come and see me. And it was kind of like a scene from a movie. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. It was literally like that. Who are you? Please come and see me. And so, of course, we did. Um, and he was very instrumental. We, he got us a grant for our first unproduced show, and he said, that's okay. It it's not going to be produced, but I want you to do another, and we did another, and lo and behold, uh, that became Lucky Stiff, which was our first show produced by Playwrights Horizons. And 
after Lucky Stiff opened and was kind of a marginal success, you know, not a mm-hmm. complete it's success. Sort of a cult hit. A know? cult hit. Yeah, had a following. Yeah. Uh, he came back and said, well, you know what? Now we want to do another show with you. So we, we were very, very lucky to have a producerial home. We had producers. Andre was there at the time, and, and Ira brought us to Andre, and, and we became... Uh, part of their extended family of writers, and and that's what young writers need. That is. That's really what they need. Our producers who who give you the freedom to fail and invite you back again to try again, because the only way you really get good is to continue writing and continue uh, experiencing the 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 uh, the process of of learning your craft. And we've had that opportunity, and it's it's been a gift. And here we are back with them for our sixth show. Yeah, you know, it's, so it's fantastic. It's, it's tremendous. It really is. Yeah, it's good to have that support. I mm-hmm. I. I I wish I knew who to credit, credit this quote, and I'm paraphrasing it slightly, but you know, somebody's talking about how is writing musical theater is so hard. They said there's so many ways it can just go off track. Oh, really so many only ways. One way you discover right. so many new ways. <laughs> yeah, every, show, you <laughs> every show we discover, we think, oh, we learned everything there could ever be to do wrong on the last show, and then we wrong. find new mistakes to make. It's yeah, even a hat can you know, <laughs> throw things off kilter. The wrong hat or the anything, you know. Right, but it's it, hard. It, it was fantastic meeting Ira because you know in the Midwest. I I had no collaborators. I sort of wrote everything myself by default, and I dreamed of going to New York, and I thought it would be one of these evenings where somebody would walk up and say, hey, kid, I like that song. Do you got any more? And and sure, here they are. And it was literally that scenario. It's it's as, as if I had imagined it into being, right? You know, and I and I do remember the first time I ever went to Playwrights Horizons. I was on a, <laughs> a trip to New York with the University of Cincinnati Men's Glee Club, and we had yeah, exactly, <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> we were gleeful, and, and and we had two nights off, and we could see any shows we wanted to see. And I had read and heard about this show, March of the Falsettos, which I knew nothing about, and I had I knew nothing about Off Broadway either. You know, it was one of my early trips to New York, and so I saw March of the Falsettos at Playwrights Horizons. And I was so excited and bowled away, not only by the subject matter, but by the incredible energy in that theater and the how to, the how it was produced, what it was about, the whole vibe of the place. And I was so excited that on my, la- uh, on my only other night, I went back and saw the same show again because I had to re-experience it, you know, within 24 hours, you know, what I had felt. And I think at that point, I said to myself, I'm going to work here someday. I really want to work here. And, and it came to pass, which is fantastic and lucky. All right. Well, for our listeners who are catching this right away on the show, you guys are having a free talkback section? Yeah. Session? Yes. Uh, yes. Next Tuesday, the 23rd at 6 o'clock in the Lincoln Center uh, Beaumont Lobby. Um, we're going to be talking uh, along with Francine Prose, the author of the novel, who's amazing and wonderful. Um, and the three of us will be um, chatting with, I believe, I- Ira Weitzman uh, about the show. Um, so come on down. <laughs> yeah. The thing, the thing that Ira was excited about is, is it's really about the creation of the novel, the creation of the characters, and then how we then adapted the characters and this really special but gnarly novel into this music theater piece. You know, there were, there were so many plot lines in that novel, and how do you focus it and create uh, a piece of, of theater right. and built upon the spirit of the characters. So I think it'll be fun. Yeah. Looking forward to it. Right. And how long is, uh, is the Glorious One scheduled to run at the Lincoln Center? Uh, it's scheduled to run through January 6th, which is a, re- a lovely long run for, for their season. Yeah. Um, uh, so... We're going to be there a lot backstage. <laughs> and the Mark Kaddish. Mark Kaddish. Oh, he's fantastic. Yeah. Brilliant, brilliant. Yeah. Couldn't, couldn't ask for better. 
Um, He's one of those guys that I've admired from afar for years and years and years, and it's odd that our paths have never crossed, but they hadn't. And I, he's that rare combination of amazing leading man, uh, great acting chops, killer dramatic voice that, that, that is basso profundo, and then he also has this whole top part that just opens up and amazes you. And also, he's one of the silliest men he's I've ever funny. met in my entire funny, life. He is funny, just funny. a silly guy. He just keeps us in stitches. He's hilarious. Yeah, he is. He's great. So we're, we're, our cast is fabulous. Yeah. Should we list their names? They're just they're, awesome. they're, they're, it's, it's a real ensemble piece, but, but Mark is, you know, he's the leader of the troupe, and yeah. he's the leader of our troupe. All right. Well, our time is running short, All but right, I thank you so much <laughs> for you. coming down and fun. and talking. It's been it's been a great experience to meet you personally, Thanks. and I hope it's our been listeners same here. are enjoying this. I wish you the best of luck with the glorious ones. Knock on wood, everybody. <laughs> 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 but whatever, we're having a good time. As a as a quick wrap up, was there ever mm-hmm. a decision on how to billet Aaron's and Flaherty or Flaherty and Aaron's? I was more beautiful in a way. Yes, Lynn said alphabetically. Yes, and alphabetically. alphabetically? Yes, and that, I'm sticking to those explanations. No, we. No, I don't know. It just evolved that way. Lynn liked it that way. I did. So I liked it. <laughs> All right. Well, best of luck and thanks, thanks. so much. Thanks, thanks a lot. My pleasure. Okay, Michael. Top of the trades. Not a lot of news this week, but what earth-shaking news the one piece we have is. And uh, is everybody ready? Please don't hyperventilate. Clay Aiken will make his Broadway debut in Monty Python's Spamalot. American Idol finalist Clay Aiken is scheduled to join the Broadway cast of the Tony Award-winning musical Monty Python's Spamalot in the role of Sir Robin. Aiken will be making his Broadway debut in the role originated on Broadway by David Hyde Pierce. His stint begins January 18, 2008 and is scheduled to continue through May 4th. Aiken, who was bested by Reuben Stutter during the second season of American Idol, has gone on to sell more than six million albums, co-author a best-selling book, Learning to Sing, Hearing Your Music in Your Life, and play six sold-out concert tours. He was the focus of a short-lived off-Broadway musical, Idol the Musical, and has appeared on Ed, Saturday Night Live, and Scrubs. For more information, visit www.montypythonspamalot.com. This is truly stunning. I don't know if I'll I'll recover from the shock waves of knowing that Clay Aiken is coming to Broadway. Yes, it is a triumphant day. Top of the Trades is brought to you by BroadwayWorld.com. For the best in theater news and community, visit BroadwayWorld.com. Curtain call. Well, thanks everybody for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed the interview with Flaherty and Aaron's. I certainly enjoyed meeting the two of them, and I'm going to flip it up. Aaron's and Flaherty, Flaherty and Aaron's. Um, I want to remind everybody again, please go to iTunes uh, and give us a five-star review in the show. It'll really help uh, boost our presence in the featured sections so that uh, more people find us. We do have a video that you can link to from the website of Nancy Anderson performing the song uh, from Yank here in the studio. You can check that out if you're interested to see what it looks like and what they're doing when they're performing in the show. Um, We've got a new web-based player. If you're not listening on your iPod, we've got a new web-based player which we're going to be unveiling within a week or two. uh, Hopefully next week, but it might be the week after. It's going to be very cool. It's going to be very easily shareable, and you're going to be able to put some of your own stuff on that, too. So uh, we're pretty excited. We're also still looking uh, for 
an ad representative business manager for Broadway Bullet if you're located in New York. If you got some experience dealing with uh, corporate accounts, uh, got a love for theater, um, it isn't full-time. It is commission-only, though we do offer a very generous commission. It will be worth it. Um, if you're interested in helping, getting involved, maybe slowly transitioning into another career, this might be the job for you. Go ahead and send a resume to info at broadwaybullet.com. Uh, it would be really great if the person who was doing this was already a listener and knew that much more about getting started with it. Well, I thank everybody so much for joining me. I hope you had a good time. Um, I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, and I will be back with you next week as you hop on the Broadway Bullet. All aboard. The hairs went up on the back of my neck. The Broadway Bullet. So, a little more about our brand new theater and business arts major. I know what most theater programs are like, and I've talked to thousands of artists. All of this told me that a new style of theater major was needed. Theater majors can get a pretty good arts education just about anywhere, but most programs do very little to prepare actors, directors, playwrights, technicians, producers, etc. to manage their careers. When you go into the arts, you are your own business, and you need to manage that to strategically plan for your career to grow. If you've listened to many of these interviews, you know you need to be self-starters to create your own opportunities. I'm going to make sure you are ready for that world. You'll get a ton of opportunities as an undergraduate. Actors will act, even as freshmen. Designers will design shows right away. Playwrights will see their shows mounted. Directors will direct. Producers will handle shows from inception to execution. Outstanding guest artists will conduct workshops, and outstanding students will even work on this podcast and travel to New York with me for interview weeks. And if that isn't enough, we've got an amazing program that will pay all or part of your student loan payments, even private loans if you are earning less than $40,000 six months after graduation. That is an invaluable option that lets you pursue your passion in theater with less financial pressure. If interested, and I hope you are, Go to broadwaybullet.com. I'd love to help you launch your career.